Hello, my name is Nicole Jolin. The Old Testament reading is found in 1 Kings 3, 9 through 10. Please give your servant a discerning mind in order to govern your people and distinguish good from evil, because no one is able to govern this important people of yours without your help. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had made this request. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Bob. The New Testament reading is found in 1 John 2, 18 through 19. Little children, it is the last hour. Just as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have appeared. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really part of us. If they had been part of us, they would have stayed with us. But by going out from us, they showed they all are not part of us. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is David. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in John chapter 14, verses six to seven. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have really known me, you will also know the Father. From now on, you know him and have seen him. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated this morning. We're going to pray here in just a second. Uh, but I have one important announcement to make before we pray and then open uh, the scriptures. For those of you who've been around New Life downtown for a while, uh, you know that meeting here in the city's oldest high school presents us with a number of opportunities as well as a number of challenges. Uh, one of the greatest challenges to meeting down here is climate control in the summer. Uh, we have one part of the building that we use that has air conditioning. Uh, the sanctuary here is cooled by a swamp cooler. I'm not sure that those words should ever actually go together, but they do. So we, we've had both of the, you know, the AC unit in one part of the building, the swamp cooler here. The other parts of the building don't have any climate control. Uh, for the summer, they've got heaters, but those don't really help us uh, all of that much. The ones that we do have vary in their effectiveness, and they really struggle as the day goes on. Early in the morning, they seem to do okay, and then later on in the day, uh, this room just starts to get rather sweltering. So over the years, we've developed all kinds of strategies and systems to help, including in installing window AC units in kids' classrooms and handing out hand fans to all of us uh, during the summer months to try to keep ourselves cool. Uh, but this year, we're going to try something new, something we haven't tried before. In order to beat the heat and to be together, we're going to move to one service in the summer at 9.30. Uh, so next week, we're going to meet at 10 o'clock at the park. And then the week after, we're going to go to one service at 9.30 from June through Labor Day. And you wonder, why 9.30 out of all of the times? Uh, we know that getting into the building earlier is better. That helps us to keep it cool. We also know that two-thirds of the congregation comes to this service, uh, comes here at 9 o'clock, including many of you with small kids who are on nap schedules 
growth and you're trying to navigate all of those dynamics. But we also know a third of our congregation comes at 11 and we're asking them to move pretty significantly. So 9.30 is kind of our weighted compromise uh, to get into the building earlier to beat the heat, but also gives us an opportunity to all be together and for the two parts of our congregation to meet and interact with one another uh, over the summer. So my ask is this, let's try it together. Let's beat the heat together. Let's be together. Uh, let's lean into it, have as much fun as we can, uh, and we'll go from there. So starting in June, 9.30, all the way through Labor Day, but next week, 10 a.m. at the park. All right, let's pray. <laughs> Jesus, uh, we come before you today. We're gathered here uh, to lift up your name, to encounter your spirit, and to be transformed into your likeness. And so as we open the scriptures today, would you speak to us through them? Would you open our minds to understand? Would you ignite our hearts with holy love for you and for your world and for your people? And would you transform us? Would you uh, heal us? Would you help us? Would you comfort us? Would you challenge us? Would you speak to the places uh, in our hearts that are filled with uh, weariness, with fear, with anxiety, with doubts? With anything that's going on inside of us, would you meet us in those places and help us in Jesus' name? And all God's people said, amen. Well, good to see you this morning, especially good to see everyone who's watching online, everyone that's here. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the Antichrist and testing the spirits. Uh, I did not want to talk about this last week on Mother's Day, so I figured I'd wait uh, until this week to go into this topic. By testing the spirits, really what we're talking about is discernment. But that term antichrist, as soon as you say it, it's like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> the first time I remember hearing the term, I, I probably heard it at some point as a kid, but the first time I remember hearing it uh, was when I was a teenager. I was a junior in high school. I was a new believer. And uh, the family that led me to Christ had me watch a film about the end times called A Thief in the Night. Uh, some of you remember this film from the 19, 1970s. It was a forerunner uh, to the Left Behind books and the Left Behind movies, for those of you that are familiar with those. Uh, like the Left Behind series, it's loosely based on a particular interpretation of Revelation and a couple of other Old Testament or New Testament and Old Testament passages. Uh, but when I saw the movie, I was completely freaked out. <laughs> like these passages that are meant to bring comfort to Christians were giving me night sweats. It was like, but I don't know what's going on. I was terrified, more scared than I ever was watching Cujo or Children in the Corn or Night Nightmare on Elm Street, Thief in the Night terrified me. And it did for years until I eventually learned, oh, that's just one perspective on those passages. Uh, that that interpretation of Revelation and those passages that uh, are being built around there are actually relatively recent interpretations and actually pretty distinctively American. Uh, that that view is really popular in Christian pop culture in America and not so much around the world. Uh, but it's taken deep rootedness here in the U.S. There are actually other historic interpretations of Revelation and of those other passages that I think are more faithful readings to those books and to 
those texts uh, that have been existed for a long time and shared uh, around the world. If you're interested in some of those things, we did a series in Revelation back in 2020 because we thought that was a really good time uh, to open uh, that book and decided, yeah, let's just lean in and talk about that all fall. Uh, but fall 2020, uh, book of Revelation, if you want to go back and look at that. But today we're going through 1 John. And 1 John and 2 John are actually the only two New Testament books that use the term Antichrist. It doesn't appear in the book of Revelation. It doesn't appear anywhere else. Only in 1 and 2 John does the word Antichrist appear. Uh, in Christian pop culture, in the, sort of that Left Behind series arena, the Antichrist gets associated with the beast in Revelation 13 and gets portrayed as a singular future or maybe present world leader, particularly from another religion um, who is going to rise up and sort of take over the world uh, and persecute Christians in that process. There have been a number of popular options for this figure over the years. The Pope has been a popular option, uh, particularly a few hundred years ago. Hitler, Saddam Hussein, the U.S. president from the party that you're not registered to vote in. You know, there's all kinds of ideas. If you're a baseball fan, it's George Steinbrenner and the Yankees. Um, there, there's all kinds of options that we threw out there, but the idea is that there will be this future singular world leader who will come into power, and then that leader's rise will mark the beginning of the last days or the beginning of the end times. But we find a very different perspective when John uses the term in 1 John and 2 John. He begins this way, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Little children, he's speaking again to the church with deep affection. It is the last hour. It is the last days. It is the end times. Just as you have heard the Antichrist is coming, you've known that these things were going to happen. So now many Antichrists have appeared. John writing here at the end of the first beginning of the second century, many Antichrists have appeared. And this is how we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really a part of us. If they had been a part of us, part of that fellowship with God and with the believers, then they would have stayed with us. But by going out from us, they showed they are not part of us at all. For Jesus and for the New Testament writers, phrases like the last hour, the last days, the end times, all of those kinds of terms referred to the time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. That from the time that Jesus came and arrived in, on the earth, the time of his incarnation, until he comes back in final victory, that's what the New Testament calls the end times or the last days or the last hour. In other words, we have been in the end times for 2,000 years. We are closer to the last day today than we were yesterday. <laughs> and then we were the day before, Jesus could return tomorrow. That would be wonderful. I think in the new creation, Palmer High School has AC. Like, it would be amazing if Jesus were to return again and set everything right. It could be 2,000 more years from now. We don't know. The text tells us that only the Father knows the hour. But we are to live as if, as if it is the last days, because it has been since Jesus' first coming 
until his second. And then John says that there are not one Antichrist, but many. And not one in the future, but many that have already appeared. This is the mark of the last days, the last hours, that there are going to be those whose teachings oppose Jesus, who say things about Jesus that are not true. And John says they actually came out from his churches. Some people send out church planters. John's sending out antichrists. This is not like church growth philosophy 101 for him. But what he's referring to is that there were at that time around Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, there were false prophets, false teachers, those that he called liars and deceivers, who were teaching things about Jesus that were untrue. And he referred to those who taught things that were untrue about Jesus as antichrists. Now, for us, we hear that term and we immediately start thinking of all the big, scary, like, ideas we've had from pop culture. But for him, he's using the term as these things are anti-Jesus. These things are speaking untrue things about Jesus. Therefore, they are anti-Christ or anti-Christian teachings. And then he gives us some indication of what those teachings are. The scholars debate rapidly about exactly what's happening. So I'm going to present all the options to you um, because any one of these works any one of them, the New Testament authors would have considered to be anti-Christian, anti-Jesus in their approach. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 22 says, Who is the liar? Isn't it the person that, who denies that Jesus is the Christ? The person who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. This person is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Everyone who denies the Son does not have the Father, but the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So the first thing we see from John about what an Antichrist denies or what Antichrist teaching denies is that an Antichrist or Antichrist teaching denies that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, it denies that Jesus is the long-expected heir to the throne of David. He's the long-promised one in the Old Testament. He's the anointed one that all of the prophecies are pointing to. And so what some scholars think is that what's happening in John's churches is that there are Jewish believers, people who are Jewish who came to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that have now decided, oh wait, never mind, we've changed our minds. Jesus is not the Messiah. We're going back to the synagogue. We're going back there. And John is saying, no, no, no. Jesus is the one that you've been waiting for. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the long-expected ruler in the line of David, the one that all of the prophets were pointing to all along. The second option here is, is everyone who denies the Son denies the Father. So it's possible that an Antichrist or the Antichrist teaching in, G in John's day is that they're denying that Jesus is the pre-existent Son of God, that he did not always exist from the beginning. This is huge for John. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He wants to emphasize that Jesus is the pre-existent Son of God, but Antichrist teaching, anti-Christian teaching denies that. 
So it's possible that what John's churches are dealing with is an early heresy called adoptionism, which adoptionism taught that Jesus was simply a human. He was a person just like you and me, but because of his sinless life, because of his obedience to the law, God adopted him as his own, either at his baptism or at his resurrection. And what that teaching does is denies Jesus' divinity. It denies that Jesus is the pre-existent son of God, that he is the divine one. And correspondingly, it can begin to teach that we can become like God all on our own. If we just follow the enlightened way of Jesus, we too can become more divine, more like God by our own efforts, just like Jesus did. Now, 1 John 4 gives us a couple of other options. 1 John 4, 3 says this, This is how you know if a spirit comes from God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come as a human or Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that doesn't confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. There's that word again, which you have heard is coming and is now actually already here. So an Antichrist or an anti-Christian teaching denies that Jesus came in the flesh. So there's two potentials here of what John is dealing with in his day. He may be dealing with an early heresy called Gnosticism. Gnosticism believed that all matter was evil, that anything physical, anything material was evil, including the human body. And then it branched out in two ways. If the human body is evil, if the human body has no value, well, then Jesus couldn't have had a human body. And followers of Jesus either need to treat the body poorly, so a kind of strict asceticism where people would fast and beat their bodies and treat human bodies terribly, or if the body doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter what you do with it or to it. And a really rampant hedonism, a way of saying it doesn't matter how you live, however you express your sexuality, however you engage in alcohol or food or sex, none of it matters. Just do whatever feels good. Sound familiar? Gnosticism is alive and well today. It doesn't matter what happens to our bodies, what we do with our bodies. Just seek pleasure. It's denying that Jesus came in the flesh and therefore then denying the value and beauty and significance of human flesh and obedience in the flesh. The other option here is a spinoff related to Gnosticism called Docetism. And Docetism taught that Jesus only appeared to have a body. So because matter is evil, Jesus only appeared to have a body, but it wasn't real. So therefore, he didn't really suffer, he didn't really die, he didn't really rise again, because it only appeared that way. His body was more like a phantom. Either way, this is denying Jesus' humanity. 
It's denying that Jesus came in the flesh and denying then the goodness and beauty of the human body and of the creation which God came to redeem and restore, to resurrect and to recreate. It's denial of all of those things and leads to all kinds of ethical trajectories from there. The other option is that an antichrist here is denying that Jesus' coming is God's definitive act of salvation. This ties in a little bit to the denial of Jesus being the Christ or the Messiah. But when John uses the word Jesus coming and referring to Jesus' coming, he's usually referring to Jesus' entire mission of salvation. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, return, that Jesus came to complete and fulfill all that God intended to bring about salvation to the world. And so it could be at John's time, and certainly happens in our day, that there's a denial of the efficacy or the exclusivity of Jesus' saving work. Saying, well, Jesus didn't actually accomplish all of those things. He maybe did a part, but he didn't really complete the entire mission of God. We're waiting for others to come and continue that work in some way. Or there's a denial of the exclusivity of Jesus' claims. Well, Jesus is just one path to God. He's just one teacher along the way. But in our gospel reading, we heard Jesus' own words. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So there's a denial of Jesus' unique mission, of his unique ministry. And instead of seeing Jesus as one of many spiritual leaders or teachers or gurus. But for John, these things are not a matter of perspective not a matter of point of view, not a matter of opinion. They are a matter of what's true and what's false about Jesus, not about what's different about him between one teacher and another. So John then connects false teaching about Jesus with the spirit of the Antichrist. Anyone, anything that is coming against the truth of who Jesus is he is fully God, fully human. He's the long-promised Messiah and Savior of Israel. He is the King of the world. And he is the definitive act of God in the world to bring about salvation and resurrection and new creation. Any denial of that, of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and Jesus' teachings that go along with that, John associates all of that with something that is anti Christ or anti-Christian. So any spirit that does not confess the truth about Jesus is not God's spirit. The curious thing is, why does John say that? Why does John feel the need to connect this to the spirit? I think it's possible that John emphasizes this point because these false teachers, these false prophets, these new leaders that have come up and left the church are claiming to have new revelation by the Holy Spirit. They're using Jesus' name, they're using Christian language, and they're claiming to have authority from the Holy Spirit. So John says, no, you have to test the spirits. You have 
to use discernment. First John 4, 1 says, dear friends, don't believe every spirit and don't believe every claim to the Holy Spirit. Instead, test the spirits to see if they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. John's saying not every spirit is the Holy Spirit. That not everyone or everything that claims to be Christian is Christian. That not everything that's said about Jesus is true about Jesus. And so John tells us to test the spirits because it's not always immediately clear whether or not something is a heresy, whether or not something is an untrue or false statement about Jesus. We actually have to learn how to recognize, how to test, how to discern, how to listen carefully to what is being said. So how do we do that? How do we test the spirits? I'm going to give three questions for you, a couple of comments, and then we'll come to the table. The first one is this. Anytime that we're listening to something, anytime we're discerning something, we're trying to see what spirit is at work here, the first question we have to ask is, does this align with the canon and the creed? Does this align with the historic authoritative revelation of who Jesus is and how God is at work in the world? In John's day, they did not have a completed New Testament. They had the Old Testament, and then they had the apostolic authority or witness of the first followers of Jesus. We now have the New Testament, and we have creeds. Creeds are the early church's summary of what the apostles taught. They sort of work like bumpers in bowling. If you're reading the Bible in ways that are contrary to the creed, then you're reading the Bible wrongly. (laughs) They summarize and say, if you read the New Testament and conclude that Jesus didn't die and didn't rise from the dead, read it again because you've gone into the other lane. Your ball is bouncing all over the place. This is not the historic Orthodox faith. The New Testament is built on this idea of apostolic authority. That the first followers of Jesus received everything from him. They preserved it faithfully. And they passed it on faithfully. And the church has been carrying on and passing on the truth of the gospel from one generation to the next. So the question we have to ask, is this consistent with the church has always everywhere believed about Jesus? If it's not, it's not the Holy Spirit. Something else is going on. The second question to ask is, does this lead me to love God or to love the world. John uses the world, the idea of world here, very particularly in 1 John 2. He says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Everything that is in the world, whether it's the craving for whatever the body feels, the craving for whatever the eyes see, or the arrogant pride in one's possessions, Those things are not of the Father, but of the world. It says the love of the world is marked by three things. Other translations say the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. The desire of the flesh is the overindulgence in natural desires. Am I hearing something that is encouraging me to overindulge 
in the natural desires of my body that push the desires outside of the bounds of what Jesus has said is actually best for me, of what the canon and creed teach us about the way of Jesus in the world. The desire of the eyes is the overvaluing of material possessions, the overvaluing of resources. Is this encouraging me or leading me to actually overvalue material possessions in ways that lead to greed or to hoarding or to putting our hope, our faith, or trust in material things rather than in Jesus? Or the pride of life, is this leading me to have an overconfidence in myself and my ability to secure my own life, to secure my own salvation, to rescue myself, to redeem myself in some way, to hold on to my own sense of strength inside of me that leads me away from trusting in Jesus. But the love of God is marked by obedience to Jesus' commands. We've seen this throughout this series that John over and over and over again says that those who love me do what I say, that those who love me obey my commands, those who love me are with me to learn from me how to live like me. They're actually learning from Jesus how to live in accordance with his teachings about life, particularly his command to love to love in the Jesus way. The uniqueness of Jesus' teaching is that he extends love from neighbor to enemy. He says to love everyone. In John's gospel, or sorry, in, um, in John's letters, he particularly emphasizes love for one another in the church because there's a pulling apart of the church. And John's gospel says that, Jesus says in John's gospel, that the world will know that we are his by our love for one another our ability to care and love for one another as taught by Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the third question is, does this lead me to love others like Jesus? Does this lead me to love others like him? We've touched on this several times, but just a quick reminder, we know that Christian love is a love that costs us something. The call is to lay down our lives, to take up our cross and to follow him so Christian love is cross-shaped, it's cruciform, and it's a love that helps others to align their lives with the way of Jesus. It calls not only to ourselves, but to others to align ourselves with the truth of Jesus' teachings in the world. It's not loving to watch someone move away from the teachings of Jesus and say, oh, it's fine, it's not a big deal. The, the love of God compels us to speak the truth, but to speak it in love. And it's a love that strives to preserve the unity of the big C church and the little C church in our life together. Those are just three starting questions. Does this align with the historic truth about Jesus, the canon and the creed? Does this lead me to love God or to love the world? And this does this lead me to love others like Jesus loves them? But we'll need additional discernment around that depending upon the situation. So my reminder to you in the discernment process is to remember that discernment is a communal act. Discernment is a communal act, not an individual endeavor done in isolation. 
we are, our 21st century American Christians, our tendency is going to look at the sermon as an individual process that we engage in all by ourselves. But these are letters written to churches to engage in discernment together communally. It is deeply personal, but it is not private. We pray, we listen, we examine, but it's not only by ourselves. It's done in community with wise, trusted, mature followers of Jesus who we look at their lives and say, yeah, I want to live my life like that. So I'm going to seek out their wisdom, their counsel, their perspective, their help. Whenever you're in a discernment process, if you're listening to something and you're going, I don't know if this aligns with Jesus. I'm not sure this is aligning with the canon and the creed. I'm not sure if this is leading me to love God or love the world. I'm not sure if this is leading me to love others like Jesus. Find 500 friends and start asking questions and leaning in to community. The second thing I'll say here is that discernment is a spiritual gift. Paul tells us it's a gift, there's a gift of discernment. A gift that helps us to test the spirits. And he tells us to eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. So pray for that. Ask God for discernment. This is what Solomon does when he becomes king. He asks God to give him discernment. And God says, this pleases him. It pleases God when we're saying, I want to know the truth and I want to follow in it. So help me. And it pleases him when we ask others for help. And it pleases him when we ask him for help. Ask him to give you a spirit of discernment. As Jen and Evan come forward, there are times that this kind of idea of you know, testing the spirits, of discerning, of listening, of trying to parse out, is, is this true about Jesus or this is not true about Jesus, can feel really overwhelming. It can feel hard. It can be difficult. It can certainly be costly can lead to costly decisions. But as we come to the table, I want to remind you of the thing that John reminds the early church of. He reminds them after talking about all of this to remember that God is greater. 1 John 4, 4 says, you are from God, little children. You are God's kids. And you have defeated. You've actually already won. You have victory because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the world. In other words, the Spirit of God lives in you. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Jesus has already conquered death and hell and the grave. He's already been raised. He's already appeared. He's already ascended. He reigns at the right hand of God. He will come back again. Victory is already ours. And when he ascended, he sent the Spirit to come and help us individually and collectively. And the Spirit of God... It's deeply committed to you. It is deeply committed to you learning to walk in the way of Jesus. So when you eagerly desire discernment, when you eagerly seek it out, God eagerly gives to those of us who ask him for help in these areas.
And in the spirit of discernment, of unity with Christ, unity with one another, it's part of the practice that we have is to come back to this table for the sake of recognizing and worshiping and responding and being unified with the one who is true, truth himself. This is Jesus's table and all who believe in Jesus as the true king of the world are welcome to receive regardless of your church background or affiliation. If that doesn't describe you, thank you for being here on this Sunday morning. We're honored that you chose to spend the morning with us and we encourage you, keep coming back, keep asking questions about Jesus. If you are ready to begin following him today though, we invite you, join with us as we confess our sin and ask for forgiveness and trust God again for salvation. The words of our confession will come up on the screen. Let's confess together now. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. So beloved, it is my joy this morning to announce good news to you. Words that are true, not because I say them, but because what God has already done. So would you open up your hands and receive again this mercy of God. That Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. And this proves God's love toward us. That in the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The peace of the Lord be with you. Amen. As those who have been raised to new life in Jesus, would you stand together now and greet your brothers and your sisters around you and share the peace that you have with Jesus with one another. And here's a declaration that we confess is true, that Jesus is here. So lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord, our God. It is right, all over this place. Thank you, God. Thank you for your love. It is a good and joyful thing to give thanks to you, Father Almighty. You formed us in your image you breathed your life into us. And when our loves failed, your love remained steadfast. When we were unfaithful, you sent your son to be faithful on our behalf. And we remember this, that on the night that Jesus was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord, Jesus Christ, took bread. And when he had blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. 
And after supper, he took the cup of wine, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of God's mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we proclaim this mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and that Christ will come again. We believe we're all part of the priesthood of believers. Would you just open up your hands, heaven where now, we're over the elements, and we're praying and inviting the Holy Spirit to meet us here through them. So Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts of bread and wine. May they be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, you make us one with Jesus and one with each other and one in ministry to all the world until Jesus returns in final victory. Amen. Amen. I want to invite the servers up now. These are the gifts of God given for us, the people of God. Receive them in remembrance that Jesus died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. This is your first time here. If you need to know what to do, you can either ask or look at those around you or you can scan the QR code on the screen. If you are unable to come forward, please ask someone around you to bring the elements back to you when they go up. Otherwise, this is the moment of response to all of God's great love for us. Let us worship together again as we come to the table now.